Well, good morning, church. Um, it's always weird when you, uh, you know, I knew Grant back in, in high school and, and college and got to see some of the cars that he drove. Um, the, the first one that comes to mind was, the, it was like, what, 1972. It was a boat, massive car, oil leak, smoking engine. So if, you, if people want to get mad at the pollution and the cost of oil, Grant used up an inordinate amount of it um, with that vehicle. And then the, uh, the nice Celica, powder blue leaked oil as well. Uh, great neighbor. Um, but it's always fun when you have discipled and mentored somebody. And I remember sitting under uh, one of Grant's sermons a few months ago, and I remember thinking, oh, like, he's better than me. Like, he has surpassed me. And that's really cool. And so this has been a huge blessing for my wife and I as we've kind of made this transition uh, to, to sit with you guys under the preaching of the word, and it has been a tremendous uh, blessing to, to find a gospel-centered church that proclaims and exalts Christ, and sometimes we get so myopic in our view of the church, and we realize, man, there's a thousand of these churches around the country just faithfully going about proclaiming God's word, and so we appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to walk through a very familiar text. Uh, This is a text, every time I read it, I hear my grandpa's voice, uh, because this is what Christmas gathering was. We would gather together as kids, and my grandpa would read this story as the presents taunted us in the corner. We had to sit down, endure the story, and then go around and talk about all the things we're thankful for, and looking at the presents. And it went on for like, felt like eight hours. Um, And so this story has a very uh, special place in my heart just because it reminds me so much of my grandpa. Um, But preaching texts like this, I think, can be a lot harder than you might think. And because some of it is, is there are all these preconceived ideas that we have, and it's hard to see the story fresh. Uh, There's a tendency, I think, that preachers have to want to give you nuance and novelty, to want to give you something new from the story. That's not my goal this morning. I really just want to remind you of the great drama that unfolded 2,000 years ago. I went to a seasoned pastor one time. I said, how do you preach these really familiar texts? And he said, just get out of the way. He said, you could literally just get up, read it, and go home and it would be better than anything that you have to offer. Uh, And so that is what I want to do this morning. My prayer all week long has been that we would have eyes that would see this story freshly, um, that it would capture our imaginations again and move us like it did when we were eight, nine, and 10 years old and heard it for the first time or we saw the movies play out. Um, Because there's an importance with story, I think, that sometimes can get lost in solid doctrinal churches is that we kind of focus on these doctrinal points and we forget that it really is the story that captures the imagination initially for people. Certainly our children, it's the story. And we can hold the doctrine and the drama together. And so Dorothy Sayers, I think, captures it really well. She writes this, says, The outline of the story is the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten when he submitted to the conditions he had laid down and became a man like the men he had made. And the men he had made broke him and killed him. This is the dogma we find so dull, the terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. If this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worth, worthy to be called exciting? So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to reignite the imagination. I want you to see this story as we walk through the narrative. Well, the second thing I want to do is I want to answer this question. 
what are we supposed to make of this story? Because if it's just a story that we read once a year that gives us sentimental and nostalgic feelings, who really cares? If it's just an old fable, then it really does nothing for us. But if it's real, if this really happened, it changes absolutely everything. What does it say about God? What does it say about us? If it's more than fiction, we can't just read it. We must make something of it. It's either a story to capture just our imaginations or it's reality intended to capture our very souls and to give us new life. If it's a myth, smile, go on your way, put Jesus up on the mantle next to, next to um, Santa Claus or put him on the shelf next to the elf. But if this really happened, then intellectual honesty requires something more. Because if it's true, it's both tremendously comforting and it's also a little bit scary. If it's true, then this event changes absolutely everything, not only in human history, but also in our lives. And so let's walk through the text, starting in verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And so the opening words of the story, they may seem relatively nondescript to us, but they're really important because Luke doesn't start off by saying in a land far, far away or once upon a time. He places this event in real time and space. And by doing so, he's telling his readers, namely Theophilus, to whom the book is written, this story really happened. You can actually go and look at the historical markers. It would be like me telling you something that happened during the tenure of Ronald Reagan. You could find people alive at that time and actually ask them, did this really happen? And they could give you an event or finding somebody that, you know, that was alive, you know, during the time of Abraham Lincoln, which is pretty much just you, Gary, um, and at, oh, that's true, and Ken, and asking, did this really happen? And so he places it in a specific time period in history. But it's more than that, because here's, the more you hear me preach, the more you'll, you'll know I love this stuff. I love the literature of the text. And Luke is creating a literary foil here. He's laying down these side-by-side comparisons with Caesar. So you have Caesar Augustus, who's the most powerful man in the world at the time, And he is calling for a census so that he can measure his power and collect some taxes. Now, Augustus was a title that was bestowed upon him by the Senate of the time. And it means holy one or the one who is revered. And it was often a title just referred to uh, that was given to the gods. So about the time of Luke's writings, there are cities in Asia Minor that were calling him savior And archaeologists have uncovered artifacts that refer to Augustus as savior of the world. So if you know that at the time period, you can see what's beginning to unfold here in Luke. It's also noteworthy that at this time, uh, it's, it's referred to as Pax Romana, which means peaceful Rome. Augustus had achieved peace for the empire, but it was a dark and foreboding peace that had been forced upon the people. It was accomplished by crushing every foe into submission and maintaining it through fear. And so the world had at its helm, again, this audience would have understood this, a self-proclaimed God and Savior who brought peace. And this is what makes Luke's narrative so interesting, because in these first few verses, Luke is painting this literary contrast of, about what, uh, of what's about to unfold, pointing to the real God, the true Savior, and the one who brings lasting peace. And so he begins to shape this, even at the end of chapter 1, at the end of Mary's song, when she says, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
If you're reading, you're going, all right, who are these people? What is going to happen here? And Luke 2, uh, Luke begins to give us hints. And so despite being in the shadow of Augustus, Mary knew that a greater king was coming. There was one who was going to even control the mighty emperor. And so in the shadow of Augustus' grandeur and this rule is where we see the silhouettes of two very insignificant figures making their way to an insignificant town. They carry no money in their luggage. They carry no uh, prestige in their names. And yet they have great expectations in their heart. What did they have envisioned? Have you ever wondered what it was like? These are real people. They're not these fictional characters. They're real people like us. What did they think was about to unfold? Did they look back to prophecies like Micah chapter 5, verse 2? Colin, I don't know if you have the text. Is it up? It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. How many of these prophecies entered their mind? Did they know them? Were they thinking even big enough to know what was to unfold? The baby that Mary carried was not another Caesar, a man who had one day claimed to be a God, but rather a far greater mystery nestled in her womb, the true God who is becoming man. And so you see what Luke is doing here. Augustus, from the great city of Rome, declares himself to be a God by achieving peace through violence, and Luke is going to flip it on its end and show us that Jesus, from the small town of Bethlehem, is recognized as Lord by the angels and will achieve peace through the sacrifice on the cross. And so you have this great literary picture that's beginning to unfold. Well, verse 6 tells us that at some point during their stay, the time came for Mary to give birth. Now, accommodations for travelers during that day were often very primitive. It was usually a lean-to attached to a building that might provide an opportunity for somebody to get out of the weather. They could feed their animals. But even these were full because of the influx of people to Bethlehem. There were no Marriott's or Hilton's or if you were a highfalutin traveler like us, the Red Roof Inn when I was a kid. Uh, And so even the crude accommodations that would have existed, those were no longer available. And so they found a stable. And you can imagine what that would have been like for a young mother giving birth to her first child to find herself in the poorest of situations. Imagine the toll that this might have taken on Mary and Joseph's faith. I think sometimes we read the story and are like, man, they just stood into these promises. Look, she's a young teenager. She doesn't have decades of walking with the Lord to fall back on in these times of trouble. I can't imagine that she would have been looking around thinking, did I mishear things? Like I'm laying my child in a manger. There is no pomp. There is no circumstance. There is no fanfare. This backwater town and no one is noticing. Surely she would have been asking, why here and why now? Remember, Joseph has to believe that this child has been conceived by a virgin. And Mary is a young teenager. Surely they would have wondered, did I hear the angel correctly? Like, that was a weird encounter. Did I misunderstand? Is this really the way that it's supposed to be? The Messiah is supposed to come in the clouds, right? He must come with a sword to deliver us from our enemies. And yet here we are, dirty, tired, poor, alone, and no one even knows. Did Joseph feel responsible as a man for not being able to provide better accommodations for his fiancée? 
Did they look at this tiny baby with confused eyes and wonder, how is this going to work? Now, I know I'm speculating here, but these are real people. And God had been silent for 400 years. And so even in biblical times, it's not like people encountered angels every single day. But if this baby was in fact God, he took an unfathomable leap down from the splendor of heaven to the squalor of a manger. Leaving a throng of angels, he's now, uh, now huddled among animals. Nothing could be lower. Nothing could have not met up to the expectations that Mary had like this event. It's important for us to remember, too, that, that this baby is not feigning humanity. He was truly human in every sense of the word. This was not some sort of hologram that God sent down that you might see that this is the picture of a baby. He was real man and yet remained and retained all of his deity. And this only adds to the wonder and the mystery. Don't let the doctrine of the hypostatic union take away from what is going on here. The very word of God now lay as a baby, unable to speak even one intelligible word. The hands that fashioned the universe now clasped to a mother's finger. The same God who never slumbers or sleeps now closes his eyes and nods off. The same God who wraps himself in unapproachable light is now wrapped up in baby clothing. The very God who spoke creation out of nothing once again cries into the darkness. This was the Lord, the promised Messiah. And yet no baby born that day looked less like a Messiah than Jesus did. This is where we must never forget where Christianity begins, with a sense of humility, of need, of helplessness, and Christ himself sets the example for us. He's born only to those poor in spirit. And I think that's further illustrated by the fact that the angels, they don't go to Rome to announce this arrival. They go to a group of lowly shepherds. Almost immediately, Luke takes the scene from a makeshift delivery room and he turns it to a hillside. This was the new king on the scene and Caesar had no idea. Quirinius, the governor, he's probably asleep. The high priest, they don't know what's going on, neither do the scribes, the Pharisees, or the leaders of the day. My guess, even those who were present in the room at that time had no clue what was going on. But heaven knew, and almost immediately, the heavens opened, and the angels swarmed the shepherds. It's almost like they finally were like, we have a secret, we have to tell someone. Where do we go? Let's talk to the shepherds. They don't go to the palace or to the temple. These lowly shepherds, I think, are further illustrations of how God comes to the humble, which is a theme for Luke throughout his entire book. Because the shepherds, they were despised people of the day. They were stinky. They were nomadic. They were untrustworthy, so much so that their testimony was not even allowed in court. And yet this is to whom the angelic proclamation comes first. Why? I think there's two reasons. One is, it's a fulfillment of an of a obscure passage given back in Jeremiah. You see, during Jeremiah's ministry, the people are in exile, and they're wondering, are you ever going to fulfill this promise, God? All the way back in Genesis 3.15, you promised one was going to crush this serpent's head. And all throughout, we've asked, is this the one? Is, is Joseph the one? Is Moses the one? Is Aaron the one? Is David the one? Is Solomon the one? Is Isaiah the one? No, 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 no. 400 years, nothing. What is going to happen? And God in his grace gives all these little markers that says there's still promises yet to be fulfilled. Hang in there. And one of those is in Jeremiah. And it says this, 
chapter 33. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in this place that is waste, they were in exile, without man or beast and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, and in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of those of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. So in what days? When shepherds are now doing shepherding activities once again. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So Jeremiah is telling the people, the Messiah is not going to come when you are in exile. The, the, the Messiah is going to come when there is peace. And while they were still under Roman rule, this is a time of relative peace for Israel in which farming and normal life had resumed. And God had promised to send the Messiah when shepherds were in the fields watching their sheep. And so this is Luke's way of saying, this is the one. Like it's, you may remember this passage. This is actually the one now. So by going to the shepherds, he's pointing that fact out. So when they appear to the shepherds, as if God is saying, now, game on. But I think it's also a reminder, and I think this is the second reason. The gospel comes first and foremost to the broken, to, des, to the despised, and to the weak, which is typified in the shepherds. And I can't help but think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26 through 30. And this is a humbling passage, I think, for all of us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, a baby in a manger, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, shepherds on a hillside. God chose what is low and despised in the world, death on a cross, even things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, Jesus comes in weakness and frailty to those who are weak and frail. So be encouraged. Those of you who think your life is too messy, that you could never come to Christ, that's good news because that is the only condition through which we come to Christ. That's all of us. When you look in a mirror and you're like, man, I am, I've got nothing. When you look in your wallet and you have nothing. When you look around and you say, why do I not match up to the expectations? I have nowhere else to go. That's good news. We come with empty hands. And when we do that, God smiles and says, now you're ready. Because the good news the angels gives to the shepherd is that a savior has been born. And that word savior implies an element of desperation, doesn't it? I need saved. God didn't send a doctor that we would be healed. He didn't send a therapist to counsel us. He didn't send a banker to enrich us. He sent a savior, one who cried to people who cry out, I need help. I need to be saved from what? We need to be saved from sin and guilt, and namely God's wrath. This is the message that Joseph receives in Matthew. When the angel visits him, he says, Joseph, 
you will name you will name him Jesus for he will deliver his people from their sins. He doesn't say he will deliver the people from the Romans. We get this wrong all the time. We need to be saved from the consequences of sin. Because Romans tells us that is death, and not just physical death. It is an eternal spiritual death. Church, we have got to regain a sense of what this means. Our problem is not that we feel unfulfilled in life. Of course we feel unfulfilled in life. We live in a broken world that can't answer the promises and the longings that we have. We have a million problems. Our problem is not poverty. It's not oppression. It's not injustice. Those are simply results of living in a broken and fallen world. Our problem is not even that we do some bad things and have some bad habits. Our problem is that we have rebelled against a holy, omnipotent, all-powerful, good, gracious God. That's the problem. I think we have forgotten that. Why is this not more readily preached from the pulpits? The church needs to regain a sense of what it means to weep and wail under our sin, not to minimize it, not to patronize people as if they're okay and just need a few little self-help tips to get through. Too many churches preach a message that salvation is found when you feel a certain way or when you've been self-fulfilled. But the Bible has nothing to do with self and salvation. In fact, the whole moral of the story is that you would die to yourself, that Christ might be build up in you a new man. And I may have shared this with you before, but at my first job, I was a school teacher, 22 years old. Uh, the, the principal was about 75 and kind of a little grumpy guy. And I'd walk in every day, and for the whole first year, every day, he'd say, cheer up, Nate, God's trying to kill you. I was like, what? This guy's lost it. But I'm not sure that's not a great example of the gospel. The God is not trying to make you self-fulfilled. He is trying to get you to die to self. This is what it means to be saved. And it's a work that has to be done by someone else, someone perfect, someone human who can die in our place, and someone divine who can cancel an eternal debt. This is the mediator that Job cries out for. Remember, in all of his suffering, he wails before the Lord and he says, if only there was one who could lay his hand upon God and lay his hand upon me that I might make my case before him because nobody knows how I feel. And God says, I got one, just hang on. One who's gonna be able to do both. Lay his hand upon God, lay his hand upon man. And this is the cool thing about the incarnation. And I was probably five years ago before I realized this. Jesus never takes off his humanity at the ascension. We still have humanity before the throne of God, interceding before us as one who understands fully. He never sheds his humanity. I mean, think about that. That's amazing to me, that God is still fully human before the throne of God even today. And so the angels are declaring, the mediator is now here. The Savior has been born. But the good news goes even farther than that. Verse 10, it is for all the people. It was not just for Jews only, which is good news for most of us. It was not just for religious leaders. It was not just for kings and priests. It was for lowly teenage moms like Mary. It was for confused soon-to-be dads like Joseph. It was for lowly shady shepherds. And for all those who recognize their brokenness and their need to be saved. But let me pause here for a moment. And it doesn't mean that all people are universally saved. 
The meaning here is that all types of people are saved. Only those who turn to Christ, Scripture is very clear here, only those who turn to Christ and take a knee before this king who trust in his saving work are saved. And for many, this message is tremendously offensive. Try to go out in our culture and proclaim it. Try to say there's one way, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, the life, and watch how arrogant and closed-minded you will be called. Because if there's only one way to be saved, who are you to say that that is the only way? And it's like, I didn't say it. God said it. God's word says it. And then I always ask people, how many ways do you think there should be? Five, 10, 20, 30? The truth of the matter is, is you don't want more ways. You want your way. You want 7 billion different ways. You want to choose the way to make yourself right with God. I mean, think about the same instance here. If there's a fire that breaks out and Josh says, there's the exit. And we all say, we are so arrogant. Why do you think you're the only one that knows how to get out? We wouldn't ask the question. We would just be looking for direction. Get me out of here. Save me. But the fire would remind us of the need. And that's where our culture has been numbed to the fact that we have patronized people. We have told them they're good. We've played this self-victim mentality instead of saying, there's fire. There's the door. There's the answer. There's the Savior. So we can either complain that there aren't more ways to be saved, or we can rejoice that there's even one way to be saved that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And so salvation, it does not come out of obligation that God was like, man, I didn't see what was gonna happen in the garden. Now I got all these people that are lost. It comes because God is gracious and loving, overflowing of goodness and kindness. Now look at verse 12. The angels assume... They given this news, the angels will be looking for a savior. He said, this will be a sign for you. And so they offer some clues so that they will know. Because imagine the scene. You're a shepherd, and they just said the king has been born. And you say, well, we'll go into town. We'll just follow the noise. We'll just find the biggest block party going on. Surely that will tell us where this is taking place. And the angel said, no, no, no. The sign for you is he's going to look like every other child. You're going to see him wrapped up. They would have been expecting pomp and circumstance, celebration, and they would have missed it. And the angels, even in their graciousness to these shepherds, say, you're going to find him in obscurity. You're going to find him wrapped up in humility. He would be sleeping in a feeding trough. Surely they went, again, did I hear that right? No house, no crib, no fanfare. And then as if the, I love it, because as if the heavens get so excited, they can't contain themselves anymore. This had been thousands of years in the making, build up, build up, build up. They've seen all the little redemptive things begin to unfold in this narrative. And then the heavens burst forth, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. And they swarm and they sing and they raise their voices. And here we see the purpose of this great event. Peace for us and glory for God. The coming of Christ will be the greatest revelation of God's glory. It demonstrates his love, compassion, grace, mercy, patience, and his sovereign design. The point of salvation is that God is glorious and gracious in redeeming a wayward people for himself. People who were once enemies, we have now been brought near through the coming death of this little baby, through the blood of the cross. 
And so here's the main point of the message as we begin to wrap up. What does it mean to have peace? It doesn't mean that you have an inner feeling of some sort. It doesn't mean that all of your relationships have been fixed. There are elements of that that may be true in our Christian walk. When the Bible mentions peace, it mentions an end to war. You see, the human heart, we want to be king. Everything in us wants to buck authority. All you got to do is look at your kid, right? It's human nature. Even in the garden. You guys ever get frustrated with Adam? It's like, what else did you need? Like, there's just one thing not to do. And you wanted to do it. It was a couple months ago when Grant put the do not enter on the door over there and my daughter, midway through the sermon, is like, what's behind the door? Like, I want to know. And so we have this rebellion as part of us that we want to be in charge, all of us. And I think this is illustrated by two types of people. You have the irreligious person that says, I will live any way I want to live. I will be true to me, right? That's our culture's mantra. Then you have the religious person that says, I'm going to be good, and then God will owe me some type of blessing. But you notice both of these lack trust in God. When you're trying to earn God's favor, you are seeking to be your own savior. And when you're living under your own rules, you're seeking to be your own God. But scripture tells us there's no other name under heaven by which we are saved. Certainly not your name, certainly not mine, and certainly not my effort. But notice that I is at the center of both those approaches. On the night in Bethlehem, God wipes the I out of the equation. He places himself into the center of the story. He's the hero and the victim. He's the author and the accomplisher. It is all him from beginning to end, which is really good news because if it was me, I would mess it up. We find peace with God by trusting in the promises he gives and in the work he accomplishes. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Savior, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are justified by faith, declared righteous by faith, not works, not tradition, not piety, not by church attendance. We are declared righteous when you lean into Christ, when we fall into him. I have nothing left to offer This is what Jonathan Edwards says when he says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. When we turn to Christ, God's anger is finally once and for all put away. The rebellion in our heart has been subdued and God adopts us as children. See the picture? He takes his enemies and says, now you're my child, heir with Christ. This is baffling to us. Do not let the sterility of doctrine Take away the mystery of the drama that this is in our lives. Be amazed by it again. Pray that this Christmas season. Lord, let me see this drama once again that it might move my heart and enlighten my mind to pursue you even more. The war is over. The sin that condemns us is dealt with at the cross. And Christmas, though, means nothing if it's separated from Golgotha. The crib will lead to the cross and the cross will lead to our redemption. That is the good news that the angels are singing about. That is why the angels narrow the scope of salvation. It says, to him whom God is pleased, or rather those that he has set his pleasure upon. You see, it's not a peace that comes to those who have earned God's pleasure through their goodness. God is not handing out stickers for good behavior. Scripture is clear. No one can earn God's favor. The standard is perfection. 
but rather it is a God-given peace because he is king and it's his peace to offer. The angels are not rejoicing that some men will merit salvation, that there are some good men out there, but rather that God will grant salvation to men for his glory and for his good pleasure. So as we wrap this up, let us get our cues from the shepherds. What's the application point? What do they do? They immediately go out and seek the Savior. So you picture the scene. Mary's just given birth, middle of the night, and in come a group of shepherds. I remember after our first kid being in the hospital and you're there and people come and visit. I don't think at that time my wife would have wanted a bunch of shepherds entering the delivery room. What are you doing here? And there had to have been just kind of looking at each other as they were like peeking in because men don't feel comfortable in delivery rooms anyway. Like, is this the place? The place for what? Has a savior been born? Well, how do you know? Well, angels just came to tell us. Can you imagine how encouraging that would have been to Mary? This is the grace of God, even in a small little detail. You have a teenage girl who's questioning everything. Did I hear it right? Did I hear it right? And then these stinky shepherds come in and she's probably like, oh, can it get any worse? And they say, no, the angels just told us. I did hear it right. I'm encouraged again. This, I think we forget these little details of what it would have been like. And so she takes these things and what does she do? She ponders them in her heart, holds on to them because life is only going to get harder for this mother. I believe that she knew at that moment, nothing is ever going to be the same again. Not for her, not for Israel, not for the entire world. And she takes these memories from that night. She holds on to them that at moments of doubt, when she watched her son begin his ministry and be hated and be ostracized and eventually be crucified, she'd go back and say, God was faithful. God was faithful. God was faithful. He gave me promises. He encouraged there's something more. This is not the end of the story. And then the shepherds leave, but they do so glorifying God and praising him. And it's in those footsteps that I hope that we follow. So I ask you, why are you here this morning? Friends, it's not enough. And this is what baffles me about Christmas and Easter. People show up as if God somehow is like, oh, thank you. Thank you for your time this morning. When really what scripture is saying is, here is the greatest gift you can ever ever have, but you have to let go of everything else to accept it. This is the gospel at Christmas and Easter and people show up and their ears are stopped up. I want you once again to hear the angels singing glory to God in the highest, to look at the story and say, I need to do something with this. Because if this baby was born 2,000 years ago, It doesn't mean anything if he's not born within you. And so it's my hope that you fall on your knees before Christ this morning, lift him up with the angels. He is a savior that has brought peace and he comes only to save broken people. So give up the war in your soul, surrender yourself to the peace that the reigning king offers. Caesar Augustus has been dead a long time. Our our savior has been alive eternally, eternally. And so can we sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. May we through faith be those that God sets his pleasure upon. Let me pray.